From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. This program by no means is trying to radically change healthcare systems, but we're working with individuals. Uh, and, and, you know, we feel it's working. That's Peter Korzenik discussing his nonprofit healthcare organization, Give Back Global. We'll hear more from Peter and program mentor Larry Epstein later in the show. But first, a word from our sponsors. Staffing a medical practice is no easy task, but it can be with the help of MGMA's Simple Guide to Hiring series. Christine Kalish, Penny Crow, and Sharon Jenchansky have teamed up on seven titles, all aim to assist you in recruiting, hiring, and retaining the right staff for your practice. To purchase or preview any selections in the Simple Guide to Hiring series, visit mgma.com or search for Simple Guide in the MGMA store. Are you a healthcare professional who always has the bottom line in mind? Then you're not alone. Join others just like you at MGMA 20, the financial conference, March 5th through the 7th in Nashville, Tennessee. This industry-leading conference is designed to arm medical professionals with the education and tools needed to run a more profitable and efficient practice. Whether you're a CFO, accountant, physician, consultant, or other related position, the Music City is where you'll want to be this spring. To learn more, visit the events page at mgma.com. Tis the season of giving, and this week's special episode is right in line with the theme. Today's guests are Peter Krasenik and Larry Epstein representing Give Back Global, a nonprofit pairing African healthcare providers with highly skilled U.S. volunteers in order to improve management and non-clinical business operations in remote African areas. Reports in the past decade have revealed staggering differences in the number of healthcare workers per 1,000 population around the globe. The Americas boast nearly 25 healthcare workers per 1,000 population, compared to Africa with hardly more than one. That leaves Africa with only 1.3% of the world's healthcare workers left to care for a population carrying 25% of the world's disease burden. Peter is the founder and president of Give Back Global, and Larry has served as a mentor with the organization for a little more than a year. Before further exploring their roles, though, it's best to start with their respective backgrounds. Peter, Larry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us, Daniel. Thank you as well. All right, first let's talk to Peter. Um, Mm -hmm. You have a really interesting career path. You've looked at uh, uh, volunteerism from a global level throughout your career. Mm -hmm. So walk us through that. How did you get involved in that in the first place and really where has your focus been? Well, uh, I'm a liberal arts major in college um, and very much a generalist. Um, But uh, my undergrad degree was in uh, Russian studies. Um, So my first real career job was in U.S.-Soviet trade. Um, And there was some tangential exposure to healthcare uh, in that position. This was just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, we represented some major U.S. Uh, medical device companies and pharmaceutical companies in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to jump in real quick then. That, that is mm-hmm. such an interesting time to get involved with that, with 
the Berlin Wall coming down. What yep. was that like? That seems like a, a truly globally life-changing uh, experience for certainly for the Russian people, for uh, really the rest of the world. Um, what was that like? Well, um, there was a lot of optimism in the world back in those days, late eight, uh, 1980s, early 1990s. Um, there was a, a fairly substantial amount of U.S.-Soviet trade. Um, most of it was exporting from the U.S. to uh, Russia and the republics. And uh, uh, in my second employer in that field, uh, he was the president of a prominent uh, U.S.-Soviet trading company, and he thought, well, the time might be right. Let's explore the possibility of importing Soviet-made products into the U.S. and, and Western Europe. So what I learned uh, through, uh, through a lot of uh, sweat and tears, you might say, is that uh, it was virtually impossible to sell those products in Western markets. The biggest impediment was uh, pricing. Um, it was an exciting time, but ultimately very frustrating. Um, I remember one of my colleagues said, said to me, your job is like pushing a boulder up a mountain with your nose. So um, <laughs> it was extremely challenging, uh, really, really interesting. Sure. I, the reason I was asking, one, I was just curious about it, too. I had a good friend who was stationed in Russia soon after the wall came down. He was in a import-export business related to tires, and uh, he was had a small flat where he was staying, and he cut his hand very badly one night, and he, you know, although there was a great deal of opportunity there to make some money in Russia, there was also a lot of uncertainty, and he cut his hand pretty bad on some, a rusty, wow. I think, mirror edge uh, in, his, in his room, and he was too nervous to go use their uh, healthcare system or even how he would yep. be able to do that. So he basically administered first aid on himself, gave himself a shot and, and sewed himself <laughs> up <laughs> in this room. I, I think that was a wise decision on his part. <laughs> you don't have any stories like that of uh, interacting with the healthcare system at that time, do you? No, no. I, but I, but I mean I would I would I think it's uh, very wise that he that he avoided uh, that type of experience. I mean they were known for having uh, dis disinterested physicians um, being distracted during surgeries. The equipment they used was outdated. Uh, scalpels were rusty. Um, so uh, you know treating yourself if you're a Westerner um, and can't get get better treatment was probably the best way to go. Exactly. And I, I want to turn to Larry for a moment, and, and let's hear mm -hmm. your story, Larry. What's your background, and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your career path. Well, uh, originally, I was supposed to be trained to be a government servant um, and work in public administration with an emphasis in finance and budget. I went through the State University of New York system, both undergraduate and graduate. Uh, and then due to the recession in 81, took a left turn to not-for-profit higher education and finance and worked a couple of jobs here and there doing budget and planning and then landed with that 
in healthcare in the budget and planning space. That then allowed me to have a lot of different options and I was lucky enough and we were also planning a family in New Jersey uh, to end up in academic medicine, um, which allowed me to experience not just how to manage research enterprise, but also manage clinical practice. And that's where I took my heavy interest. And that's also when I first got involved with uh, the Medical Group Management Association, because at the time we were going through the first phase of managed care. And I was um, exposed to professional development activities um, mm. and trying to make that work. Um, so I was actually one of the first presidents of the state association in New Jersey. Uh, with a couple of others, and, and that's kind of led me on my path to medical practice management, uh, still with a background in advocacy and political action. So during that whole time, I was the one who took the lead many times going to Trenton, going to D.C., and actually doing professional development of my peers to how the government and regulatory process work. So that's kind of led to a, a whole career of watching things change over the last 30 plus years and medical practice management to the point where I've taken three positions through merger and acquisition and now sit with a subspecialty group in the tri-state area, trying to find its way again through the, the maze of what's happening in the marketplace, which is going through a major transformation, which I know anybody listening to your podcast would definitely know day to day what they deal with and what's happening on the ground in, in operations and finance of independent medical practice. Sure. You've got a breadth of experience over decades with medical practice groups and medical practice management. What, what's the biggest difference uh, that you've seen over that time? Because certainly practice administrators and other healthcare leaders, they face monumental tasks and monumental challenges um, on a daily basis. Uh, how has it changed the most over that time for you? Um, I think technology and the aspects of being able to access data almost in real time has really made someone in my level be able to do things and, and articulate ideas a lot more cleanly than 30 years ago when a lot of it was anecdotal to working with clinical scientists, especially now with electronic medical records and very robust business systems for medical practices that are in development. Not to say that we can't improve because we definitely need to, but I think that's probably the major change compared to the reactionary way we approach business um, from medical practice when I first started back in the early 90s mm -hmm. uh, to, to how we were getting paid, to how we were contracted, to how we bought supplies, to how we just managed staff and people and resources and scheduling. It's, it's yeah. It with technology, there's that conundrum because we're so involved with patient access um, in this field, but at times the technology can take us away from patient engagement. Um, how have you helped your team and yourself overcome that, where you can have great access, but also retain a, a human element to it, where it's not just devices talking to devices, but some of those patients want to have a, a friendly face in front of them and, and be able to communicate that way as well. Well, honestly, that's 
in the mission and value structure that gets created right from the beginning uh, as a leader and what you believe to be the appropriate delivery of care and keeping that as in the forefront every day because it's still a human enterprise. We're here to serve people and that's what drives me every day is that we get to serve people and I'm in, it's very unique now. I love dealing with kids. So I'm working in a pediatric subspecialty practice. So that's really full family care uh, because the patient may be the child, but you're dealing with the mother, the father, the grandparents, other siblings, anybody who's involved in helping to take care of that child's problem that's been presented to for us to take care of. Okay. Well, you said a key word there. You talked about service and service is really at the core of what we're talking about today. Um, we're talking about volunteerism. We're talking about uh, mentorship as well. And we're going to hear a lot more about your mentorship story in a little bit, Larry. But let's turn back to Peter. Um, currently, your focus is with an organization called Giving Back Global. Tell us a little bit about that organization, what its mission is, and how you got started there. Um in 2000, we, and we did a number of on-site uh, management projects, management training projects in, in uh, Uganda and Kenya to help the management of uh, healthcare facilities improve their performance. Um, but I didn't have funding, so the handful of volunteers who went out on short-term projects paid out of pocket. I had to convince them uh, to pay for their airfare, their, their accommodations, any in-country costs, etc. And that's obviously uh, was not a sustainable model. Uh, so in 2015, I uh, told my partners in, uh, in Uganda and Kenya, let's think big. Let's come up with a, an ambitious, uh, big idea uh, that might be worth exploring further um, rather than these one-off individual projects. So um, I came across a, uh, a document um, that USAID wrote, a report entitled uh, Lessons Learned in Organizational Capacity Building for Health Systems Strengthening. And uh, what it said was training is not nearly enough to transfer skills. While training is a starting point for the capacity building process, it must be accompanied by extensive and regular mentoring. So with that uh, report uh, and that recognition of the importance of mentoring, I, I told my partners in, in Uganda and Kenya, what about the idea of establishing a nationwide mentoring program in your countries? Is, you know, can, we, can we think of a way that could work? Uh, in, in Kenya, um, we, I, I sent um, a, a very experienced uh, senior level healthcare systems CEO to uh, to work with my partner. Uh, he he went there on a 30 day project in uh, spring 2016, and uh, he visited 40 healthcare facilities in in those 30 days. He met uh, academic healthcare management leaders, met with the minister of health. Um, and it was a feasibility study, basically, to determine 
whether there was interest in a, a nationwide management mentoring program for African, for Kenyan healthcare managers. And uh, he um, learned a lot. We all learned a lot from that. Um, the the executive, the, the Give Back Global volunteer, um, met with uh, senior leaders on a one-on-one -on -one basis, uh, group sessions, and uh, the, the bottom line was absolutely. They understand what mentoring is. Um, there's a very significant lack of training and mentorship support for half African healthcare managers. Um, many of them are technically uh, very knowledgeable. Most of them are uh, clinical doctors and nurses who have been thrust into management positions, um, wholly unprepared for, for that role, for the job. Um, you know, and, and those few that have had healthcare management training um, were unable or, or expressed the belief that uh, there's a big difference between what we've been taught in the classroom and the practical knowledge uh, that we need uh, to to be successful on the job as he as healthcare managers. Um, and even the the Minister of Health during this. this 30-day project uh, told our volunteer and our team that uh, the biggest problem in healthcare, as he sees it, is lack of management skills in the country. So um, we were very convinced that uh, we were onto something. And uh, I told my, my partner in Kenya, you know, I can't help you uh, with, with the idea. Uh, I can't give you any uh, specifics on how you want to set up a, a, a management mentoring program. I can assure you, though, based upon my career experience, um, that I can find you, I can give you access to expertise. You name the type of healthcare management uh, expertise that you need, I'll find, I'll find those people for you. So the bottom line is uh, he created a, uh, a, a virtual management mentoring program called Wired for Excellence um, that uh, connects it's a two-part program there's an e-learning component uh, but what really distinguishes the program uh, is the fact that we pair um, Kenyan health managers with US healthcare executives so the US healthcare executives have uh, in most cases they're, they're like Larry they've uh, been been uh, senior executives for 25 or 30 years we're pairing them with uh, again, primarily young doctors and nurses who don't have significant management experience. And um, that's the program we've created uh, thus far. We've put together about two dozen uh, U.S. mentor Kenyan mentee pairings, and it's going very well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I want to dig deeper into that, that program, but I, I want to get Larry's perspective. Larry, What's been your story with Giving Back Global? How did you hear about it first? And uh, what's been your experience with it? So in between positions and merger and acquisition, uh, things that happened to me, um, I was looking for volunteer opportunities and happened to network digitally with Peter's group uh, back in late 2017. Uh, I then subsequently linked up with another position 
in my transitions. And but I started on the journey, working with Peter's group and what what could be done. Learning about Wired for Excellence, learning about uh, Give Back Global, and then saying I'm willing to make the commitment as long as you felt that it was comfortable that we could find a match that made sense. Um, so that experience started 12 months ago, Peter, I give or take, I, I would About, guess. About, yep. Mm -hmm. um, and I took it upon myself really to just use the technology the best way we could to have starting as much as bi-weekly sessions and then expanded to monthly sessions with a woman by the name of Doris who was assigned to me as part of the program to mentor her. So the best way we found to do it was uh, on a, I will call a Sabbath day, either a Saturday or a Sunday, um, to, because that allowed them that free time or that time away from their, op, their daily responsibilities. Uh, she was in a remote uh, healthcare clinic and away from a lot of her connections, family, and, and, and peers. So we would talk uh, over Skype um, and do that on a routine basis. Uh, she was fed different things as part of her training to, to ask me or get guidance on uh, as part of her e-learning to then bring back to the group because uh, they were doing uh, group sessions and individual education. Uh, and as well as to bring her own story and personal issues that she was experiencing, not just as a healthcare professional, but as a, a person, because um, that's really the major part of any mentor-mentee relationship is building that relationship. Uh, a lot harder to do from a totally different continent, culture, yep. uh, et cetera, which I just embraced, to be honest with you. Yeah, I wanted to, talk about that process of your relationship with Doris. Um, I'm assuming there's a pretty big time difference. So when you guys are setting up a Skype call, uh, who gets the short end of the stick? Are you in the middle of the <laughs> night or is she? Actually, neither both. That's why we picked the Sabbath. So I could be in morning and she could be in evening. Okay. Time. So it allowed for that flexibility that she would either be doing after a meal or right before a time between a meal and bedtime. And I was up during the day. That that time difference of well eight hours or so yeah, worked yeah. out to worked out to uh, to our benefit. As much as we think we have good infrastructure and technology in a lot of the world, there are definitely gaps. They they definitely have gaps trying to do things on non-land based or, or wired tech, technology, especially with video, very hard to do. Mm -hmm. But and it was very important for us to be visually connected. Um, during the summertime, she was outside. I, let, I went outside because we also wanted to show our geographic differences. And she was fascinated, of course, that I was half a mile from the island of Manhattan in New York City. Uh, and. What, what that meant compared to her being rural in a rural environment uh, and her living arrangements, her, her ability to get access, all were, were factors in be, us being able to communicate. And what I did with that said, we have a time limit, let's get to the point. We got 35, 40 minutes max probably between electrical issues, telephonic issues or, or, or IT issues and let's get to it, get things going. and. We would then, in the interim, communicate via email. So if she had a question or an idea, or if I had some 
material I wanted to share with her. I was able to luckily enough be able to connect with her via email. And that's how I got some of my personal materials over to her as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she got to meet my family. Uh, I wasn't lucky enough to meet her family per se, but because, you know, the intimacy of my family being local. Um, she got to meet the family dog and my wife and my daughter, and I, which lent to building the relationship, which was very important to for both of us because we're talking about totally different cultural experiences. So she, I wanted her to feel comfortable in me as a person as well because in most mentor mentor relationships that I've been in the past, of course, it's been in, intra-organizational or in the professional association through MGMA. You know, I've, I've got to meet these people. I've known them. I've been at conference with them. I've had social gatherings with them. I've break, broken bread with them. None of those things I could have done to build those relationships. So I was trying the best way I could to, to, to make that happen, uh, which I thought was important. Yeah. What, what was the icebreaker for you and Doris then? What did you do to, you know, have her feel comfortable and confident that you were there to help her? Was there a moment uh, that you really connected and then were able to gain her trust? Well, uh, after the first intro, the second call that we had was the first 20 minutes was I wanted to learn about her as a person and an individual and let her speak to her family. I wanted to know how many kids she had, what her interests were, et cetera. And I did the same thing as well. And that's why I went outside with my phone and, and showed her my environment and went and uh, living in a major metropolitan area of the city would be. I thought it was very important. And she walked me around where the clinic was and her, and her living arrangements, et cetera. Um, and so I could see all that, so I could get a relation or re relate to it a lot better than I could normally um, and, and know that. So that was, that was definitely the first thing we did. So she learned something about me, my family, my interests and outside of, of, of healthcare administration and healthcare management. And I, I learned about her and her family and her children and what she was doing. And then honestly learning about the people she was working with, because those were some of the biggest challenges she was having was managing the human enterprise and, and getting people to work their way through the daily grind of working in a healthcare facility. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a moment then. What, what is her role in healthcare? And uh, talk us through that. Well, she's a clinical manager. With, in a rural clinic in Kenya. Uh, she has ultimate responsibility, not just care, because she's still a care provider, as well as trying to take care of the paperwork and, and information that has to be worked on, and also dealing with community leaders, et cetera, in, in who access daily or want access to healthcare delivery. And then she's got her outside responsibilities where her family is located, so she travels long distances at times to to work because she wants to be with family and sometimes she stays remotely um, at the clinic. Uh, other times she's going to to meet with peers or being asked to uh, go meet with peers. But mostly she's there day to day working with her colleagues in delivery of healthcare. What were the most important questions that she wanted you to, to help her solve uh, or to answer for? Her? Um, they were a lot of leadership development questions, a lot of human resource management questions, uh, but also really trying to see if there were ways to develop uh, rudimentary toolkits to, to manage the day 
whether it be, you know, she was challenged with long wait times in her clinic and people complaining was, was there a way to, to a, a, attack that? Was there a different way to bring people into the, to the clinic uh, at the beginning or in the middle and the end, do it in bunches so they could address certain issues in a group setting and then on an individual setting. So it was more of trying to find, give her some skill sets to build upon. But a lot of the things were really developing her as a leader. And it's tough for me to be there because I'm not seeing it day to day or experiencing it day to day. And their delivery system is significantly different and their resource allocations are significantly different than what we have. And they have to deal with governmental enterprises, which, you know, in private group medical practices in, in a, a capitalist environment is different than working in delivering healthcare through a government uh, NGO or through the, the government even on themselves, because there's those uh, entities that have accountability and responsibility that she had to, to work. Okay, that that's a wonderful story. And thanks for sharing that with us, Larry. Peter, I want to get back to you and get to the nuts and bolts of Giving Back Global. Um, for our audience, what is the process to get involved and what's the time commitment for anyone who's listening who might want to uh, join the organization and volunteer their time with you? Sure. Well, uh, the, the way the process works, uh, it's driven uh, by my, my colleague in Nairobi. So he will send me um, a resume and a personal profile of a new uh, registrant in Wired for Excellence, then I'll go out uh, principally on LinkedIn and uh, make the match. And uh, like I alluded to before, I think there's just a huge uh, interest in this country in giving back and sharing their their skills and expertise where it uh, can benefit others. Um, so I've been very pleased. So uh, if someone in this country is interested in uh, being a mentor for an African health manager, uh, I would uh, suggest that they get in touch with me uh, through LinkedIn or uh, through my website. And uh, I will then push that uh, resume, their resume out to my uh, partner in Nairobi and see if he, if he knows anyone who could uh, leverage their expertise and, and benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of kind of how it works. Yeah, um, and what's and, the what's the time commitment? Because I know that people, we all three on this call know that uh, time is incredibly valuable in the healthcare industry. Burnout is already an issue. So, mm-hmm. what is that time commitment? Um, we leave it up to the mentors and the mentees to uh, to uh, determine how much time to commit to the relationship. Um, we are asking the mentors to stay involved with the program for nine months, uh, but and we're hoping that it'll last uh, years uh, into the future. But um, in terms of how often they communicate with one another, um, it's and, and how long they communicate during their during their interactions, um, it's totally up to them. So, you know. Uh, of those 25, 26 mentors in the program, more than half of them are, are, are like Larry. They uh, are full-time uh, employed, senior executives, hospital CEOs, private practice CEOs. Um, and so we recognize the fact that time uh, is limited. Um, so again, uh, 
it's whatever works for the, the volunteer mentor and whatever works for the African uh, healthcare manager mentee. Once I make the pairing, I basically step back and uh, let, let the mentor and the mentee uh, figure out a course of action. And uh, I would say roughly 75% of the pairings that I've put together, um, great things are happening. And I'd, and I'd love to explore the idea of scaling this to uh, within within Kenya and to other countries. Uh, we're the, this uh, Wired for Excellence is the first uh, virtual mentoring program for he- for healthcare managers in Africa. Uh, we feel we're onto something. We're hearing good initial reports. Uh, great things are happening. Um, so uh, we'd like to uh, set our sights uh, even higher. Right. Now, part of this program and process involves solving problems. Um, in many ways, it's a lot of the same problems we see here in America in healthcare. It's dealing with merging and building a strong culture, building leaders, staffing, having better patient engagement and patient access. Can you talk a little bit about those similarities and the differences that you're seeing out there? I think I think it's different in that they're, uh, the the people, the young administrators in this country um, have better training, more extensive training. They're not just thrown into the job without any management or leadership training whatsoever. Uh, there's support networks that, that here that don't exist in Kenya. Um, there's a lot of corruption and graft that makes uh, serving as an administrator in Kenya all the more difficult. Um, so there are a whole host of common points, but it's also, I feel, uh, more difficult for the, the mentees to, to be effective in, in leadership positions in their, in their, uh, their environment. Um, but that's why we, we're putting folks together uh, in the, the Wired for Excellence program. And, you know, Larry and others can attest that uh, um, incremental <laughs> improvements uh, are taking place. And uh, I, once, I once had a... Uh, a mentor at my former employer, and he said, um, you know, Peter, uh, most meaningful change begins at the personal level. So it's not from on high, but uh, it's uh, people connecting, sharing their, their perspectives, talking, and figuring out, uh, you know, the best way forward. Um, so we're not trying to, this program by no means is trying to uh, you know, radically change healthcare systems, but we're working with individuals. Uh, and, and, you know, we feel it's working. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guests, Peter Krasinik and Larry Epstein. To learn more or get involved with Give Back Global, visit givebackglobal.com or reach out to Larry on LinkedIn. Also, don't forget to check out MGMA's Simple Guide to Hiring series. To purchase or preview any selections in the series, visit mgma.com or search for Simple Guide in the MGMA store. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, 
and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.